Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 102 with my guest, Peter Morrison. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Look at that. I got right to it. I kind of like that. Um, The website for this show is mentalpod.com. There's all kinds of stuff that you can uh, find there. There's a forum you can connect to other listeners through. Uh, There's all kinds of topics and threads created. So uh, go join it and start sharing with each other. There's a lot of people that are active on it uh, already, and it's beautiful witnessing people uh, connecting over similar issues. Um, there are also a bunch of surveys that you can take, and you can also see how those other people that have taken the survey have responded. So if you like, uh, if you're fascinated by other people and their uh, what makes them tick, go check that out. Um, Oh, a reminder, I'm coming to Portland April twenty, April 18th through 21st for the Bridgetown Comedy Festival. And um, yeah, so uh, hopefully you'll get to meet some of you, uh, you folks from Portland and maybe interview a couple of you. What else is happening that I wanted to share with you? Oh, um, I fired my therapist, which was really kind of uh, hard to do. And I don't know, fired, is that the word? Cut him loose? Gave him a pink slip? Um, she was good, but there was something lacking. I've, I've, I've probably had about six different therapists over the, over the last uh, 20 years, but there's something specifically that a few of the therapists have had that I now seek out, 
which is this intangible quality that I feel safe and comforted by them. And I can't put it into words, but I know it when I see it. And I wasn't getting that with this therapist. I got the feeling that intellectually, she knew what she was doing. Um, she was very well trained, although a lot of times she was scattered and hadn't remembered what we had done before, and that kind of hurt my feelings a little bit, but that wasn't the sole reason. It was a contributing reason to it, but um, I'm learning in my support groups to identify my needs and um, and to seek out having them met, and so I emailed her and said, I'm moving on to uh, to a different therapist, and the awkward thing is it's, it's another therapist in that office. Um, I saw this therapist come in and she exchanged pleasantries with me for about 10 seconds and I went, that's it. That that woman has that energy. I think if I could try to put it into words what it is, it's an energy that they have that I can feel aids in bringing up what is buried inside me, oftentimes a sadness. And I picture myself I I never had the feeling like I wanted to cry in front of the therapist that I let go. It felt like there was still like a like a wall up. And when I have a therapist that that feels where I feel felt and heard and feel like they're really empathizing with me, not being paid to, um it brings up something really deep in me and it can be really productive in therapy. And so um I had my first session with that new therapist and it did not disappoint it it um i think it's going to be very productive and i'm and i'm happy i did it but it was it was hard it was really hard um the other thing that i've been doing which is uh god i hope it works is i've been doing transcranial magnetic stimulation which is this new procedure where you go in five days a week for an hour or 45 minutes and they put a big magnet on your head and send pulses. And it's, it feels like a woodpecker with a dull beak poking away at your head for 45 minutes. And it's supposed to increase the blood flow in the area of your brain where you struggle to have feeling. And um, basically, it's, uh, it's a machine for those of us who feel dead inside. So I'm hoping that that, that, that works because my depression has been creeping, creeping back in. So I'll keep you guys posted on how that goes. Um, one of the surveys I put up was um, rate your top 10 episodes from 2012. And so these are, as voted by you, the listeners, um, counting down from number 10 to number one, your favorite episodes of 2012. Um, number 10 was Policeman Andy. Number nine was Lori Kilmartin. Number eight was Dave Holmes. Number seven, Steve Agee. Number six, Carrie Kenny Silver. Number five, Nada Ray Fanoyan. Uh, number four, Rob Delaney. Number three, Chris Hardwick. Number two, the second episode with Dr. Jessica Zucker. And your favorite episode of 2012 was the first episode with uh, Dr. Jessica Zucker. Um, so thank you guys for participating in that. And thank you to those guests of mine that um, helped make those uh, those episodes possible. I want to read from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. His first one was filled out by Rachel. She's in her 30s. She describes her depression as the world is spinning around me and my feet are filled with lead. About her anxiety, she says, there is something that I absolutely have to take care of and I can't find out what it is. God, that one. I think I may have read that one before, but 
It's, if I did, it's it's worth repeating because I. Um, this was filled out by Nikki. Um, she's in her thirties. About her depression, she writes, "My own personal rain cloud on a leash, a lowness, lowness that follows me and lingers in the background even on beautiful days." About her trichotillomania, she writes, "If I just make sure there are no irregular hairs and pull them, then I can relax." This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself DNT. He's in his 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He writes, yes, and I never reported it. Uh, and also some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. In university, I got blackout drunk and had sex with a girl with whom I didn't want to. I had a girlfriend at the time. I felt that the girl had taken advantage of me. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I sometimes fantasize about killing uh, slash torturing certain media figures. Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was about six, my babysitter's daughter forced me to eat her out so that I could play video games and then later threatened to tell on me if I didn't continue. Um, about his sexuality, I don't know if I mentioned this. He's He... Uh, says that he's bisexual and writes underneath it, I don't believe that sexuality is that black and white. I am sometimes straight, uh, other times gay. More often than not, I am asexual, which um, makes sense to me as a victim of, of sexual abuse. Um, a lot of times, uh, victims of sexual abuse will go either one way or the other. They'll either become extremely promiscuous or um, sexually and socially anorexic. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you he writes I'm a sexual recluse I fear intimacy I'm disgusted by the fluids and hate the hate feeling vulnerable I imagine that this stems from the sexual experiences of my past still I am drawn towards fellatio an act that I was forced into at a very young age would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend he writes I would not because I fear that I would come across as damaged um do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, I feel weak. Well, DNT, I'm sending you a big a big hug, buddy. You're not alone. You are not alone. Um, this is from the Body Shame survey filled out by Harold, who is a transgender female to male, um, bisexual, in his 20s and he writes I hate my thin arms I feel like they give away how feminine I am I hate my chest especially because my nipples are too large and I'm afraid that I can ever afford I'm afraid that if I can ever afford male chest surgery it will look fucked up because of them I hate my cunt but not really I hate that I'm supposed to hate it supposed to apologize for it or lie about it when being a dude uh with a cunt is actually kind of fucking awesome. If I could magically replace it with a dick, I might, but it would still be a tough decision. I like my chest hair and the hair on my legs and torso in general. It's especially awesome because I haven't started testosterone supplements yet. I'm just a naturally hairy guy. I could even grow a douchey neck beard if I wanted to. And even if it's too feminine sometimes, I think my face is pretty cute. When I thought I was supposed to be a woman, I thought I was ugly and like a goblin. But as a man, I actually stack up pretty well. Thank you for that, Harold. 
This is also from that same survey, and this is filled out by a woman named Fiona, who's in her 50s. Um, she's straight, and uh, what do you dislike about your body and why? And she writes, um, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? She writes, as a woman of a, quote, certain age, I find that I am far more comfortable with my body than when I was 30 years younger. I was a natural beauty, but very uncomfortable with all the attention, having been abused as a child in the past as the pretty pretty one. While I have aged, of course, face less taut, a few wrinkles, graying hair, I am actually healthier now than ever from exercising, eating right, etc. And the health and the ability to be comfortable with how my body feels and what it can do, from giving birth to hugging the dying to moving my own furniture, makes the looks part less important. As someone who was so neurotic and insecure about my looks and why others liked me at one time, I just wanted to say it does get better with age. You begin you begin to appreciate the life you have. That's so beautiful. Thank you for that. And uh, before we go to Peter's interview, I just have one more thing, one more survey I wanted to read, and this is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by Ricky, who's a male, and he's in his 20s. And uh, his happy moment, he writes, My dad had been an alcoholic for the first 12 years of my life. It was all I knew about him. I learned to accept his condition and the pain that came with dealing with it. In July of 1999, I was a 12-year-old, insecure child that just wanted a normal relationship with his father. I had such a hard time going to my father's house, my parents were divorced at age three, that I would beg my mom to tell him I was sick. But in that month, everything changed. He wanted to pick me up. He had good news, he said. He asked me, do you notice anything different about me? I told him I hadn't. That was a lie. It was noon, and the man hadn't had a drink of alcohol yet. The thought entered my mind that maybe the good news was he quit drinking. At that age, as much as I hoped that, I didn't want to guess that and be let down. He replied to me, what, I, what, I haven't, what haven't I done all day? I got the courage to reply, drink? He then explained that he regretted the relationship he failed to form with me over the past 12 years. He apologized for the drunken Little League games where he embarrassed me, the nights he made me apologize to my crying mother for something he did. Everything I wanted, everything, I wanted to burst into tears. I was thrilled, but something really held me back from showing my excitement. I didn't want to be let down. That night we went to Camelot, a local arcade. My dad was a huge pinball fanatic. Going out on the weekends I spent with my dad was a new thing for me. I was so used to having him drink at home while we watched a movie, but this, this was new and exciting. We jumped from pinball machine to pinball machine, having a decent time. I'll never forget the pinball machine we ended up at. It was Apollo 13, the movie. That night we spent hours playing it, almost beating it, pumping in more quarters, more quarters. Well, somehow we beat it. I'll always remember the memory of jumping up and down with my father at that arcade. I remember looking up at his face and seeing a smile that wasn't due to alcohol. I remember the looks on Bill Paxton and Tom Hanks' face as they looked down at us from the machine. They seemed happy for us. My dad was happy to be with me, and that was all I needed in that moment. It was the beginning of our relationship that is solid today. That was the day I began to truly know my father. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. 
Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with my friend Peter Morrison, who I've known for probably three years, two, three years, uh-huh. something like that. And Peter seems is a, like longer. <laughs> it, it seems like uh, ten years, in a good way. Okay. Peter and I know each other from a support group and leaned on each other so heavily. No, I leaned on you. No, I leaned on you in our no. first year in this support group. Um. I will always remember walking around. I would be in various cities because I was still doing uh, stand-up uh-huh. at the time. And I would remember I'd be talking to you on the phone and I'd be walking through some downtown area. And we'd both just be talking to each other about either how miserable we were or how scared we were or how happy we were. No, you never let on how miserable you were. No? No. You were always like the strong one. I was I was a mess. Well, you were going through a lot too at yeah. that time. Well, but so were you. That was my point. Yeah. Interesting. It's funny. Sometimes it's it's you remember a feeling. You forget the specifics, but I remember a feeling of talking to you on the phone and feeling like I was meant to be talking to you at that at that moment in my and that would take like my fear away. I loved you from the first time I talked to you. <laughs> That's the bottom line. I have and, we had such a good thing and it's such a blessing to be here now talking and I hope that a lot of people are able to hear this. Who knows what we're going to talk about. Well, I want to I want the the listeners to hear your story because I always when you would tell me parts of your story um I would say, well, I don't know if I could recover if I had it as bad as Peter. Let's, you, let's talk about it. And you know, I just, I want to caveat that by, by saying that I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to God that I don't have to identify myself as my story anymore because yeah, I agree. A lot went down, but I, even to this moment have to just be aware of how I'm talking about it. Because when you grow up in, when God gives you challenges in your life, it's easy to get lost in the challenge instead of the, the purpose of the challenge. And I was so addicted to, when I met you, just talking and being in the challenge, you know, allowing the discussion of it to affect me emotionally and make me feel like a good person or I'd done so, or accomplished something. And um, I really didn't feel any of that. It was just through the talking about. So, so I'm, I'm just sitting here grateful before we start reminded that, you know, God has a lot more for me than, than just what I've been through. Yeah. You know, 
to those I, I know we have a lot of listeners um hello listeners that are that are um atheists and i would ask you to put your differences aside and hang with this episode you may not have the same beliefs that peter does or that i do but peter's story is worth hearing and and the reason I preface that is because I know some people get turned off when people talk about God, especially when people who've lived through something difficult talk about God, because then they think, well, you're a fool. How can you think that there's a God when that happened to you? And I'll, and I'll tell you, thank you. Um, I, I just want to tell all of you that I, more than anyone, was a non-believer. Okay, this is a very recent thing. And unbeknownst to me, I'll be very clear, I am a Christian. I do believe in God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's very important for me to say because that's where I'm coming from. But that was not always the case. In fact, if you told me that I would be looking at the Bible as my one and only salvation, as Jesus and the Holy Spirit calling on the Holy Spirit a hundred or two hundred times a day in the heat of the moment when I need him most, I would tell you you're effing crazy. No, I'm actually the one to talk to if you are an atheist, because at heart I'm still in shock that I have this amount of um, adherence to Christian principles. But and and I'll I'll be very clear, you know, there were there were many times in my life where religious people tried to get me to see things the way they wanted me to see them. And there was absolute, I used to profess, you know, I'm a complete non-joiner. I still am to a lot, to a large degree. You know, I don't like to join groups and group sports and group talk and group outings and group, definitely not group religion. So it's fitting that we start talking about this because I think it's really important. Um, I think it's important, you know, I know the only way that I got to where I am, and mind you, the only reason I like to talk about the religious side is because of the amount of joy that it brings me. The only way I got here is by being allowed to find my own way and by being drawn to people who um, let me find my own sense of a power greater than myself. I will say this, and to all of you, I absolutely know for a fact that until you are able to surrender to something greater than yourself, there can be no true happiness and no true healing. There can't. And I say that with all due respect in the most non-denominational sense. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not saying religious, I'm not calling it anything, but until one understands the process of how to surrender to something greater than themselves, which means you have to come to some terms and definition for yourself of what that greater thing is. Would a Costco membership fall under that category i guess although i have to i have to be wary only uh, <laughs> although no in all seriousness i have to be wary and it's funny because i'm writing a paper on this very sub subject right now materialism is a dangerous higher power so oh, that's the understatement of the century uh yeah the understatement of the yeah. century it's just one of them actually yeah. Uh, so, with that preface um, put in place, I want the listener to know that the, the object of this episode is to not to try to convert anybody, yeah. but to just tell you one person's uh, story, one person's um, what they've been through, and where they're where they're at right now. Uh, before we started rolling, you said, um, "Tell me, tell me what you what you were talking about." where you just came from. Oh, I, I just came back yesterday from visiting 
families families of origin because I have quite a few um, people I haven't seen anywhere from fifteen to twenty five years. And does that uh, include your parents? It does. All of them. I saw um, all four sets of them. And uh, yeah, it four was, sets being uh, adopted, birth, surrogate, and step. Oh wow! Plus assorted estranged business associates and friends that I'd not seen in forever long. And it was funny with some of them, there were actually rumors that I had died. And it's surreal when you have people who you were so close to looking at you in shock. They literally thought you were dead. And, but that was just such a testament to, and I told them flat. I, I, well, I said I was, I was very much dead, you know, but um, just to have people who are supposed to be close to you, and who you've been estranged from by choice, I have to say, um, look at you in shock that you're alive, just as a testament to how far apart we've we've become. You where, know? where are you from originally? Originally, I grew up in New York, um, city or state, Long Island. Mm-hmm. Born in Bronxville or something like that. Grew up on Long Island, although I call it doing time. I don't call it growing up. You don't grow up on Long Island. Due time, <laughs> and uh, but from an early age, very early age, I was traveling um, all over the world, and so I'd like to think that I'm. I'd like to think I'm from everywhere and nowhere at the same time. I don't consider myself from anywhere in particular, not Long Island. I think because I had so many external influences, and I was always a kid who, I don't know, Long Island just irked me. Just it didn't it didn't feel like the place I was supposed to be even as a very young kid. And why were you traveling all over the world? My careers. I was in the performing arts. And what what did you do? I was uh, in the ballet, and I was also a child actor. Yeah, these are things that I know, by the way. But I'm just I'm <laughs> I'm doing asking you these questions yeah. for the for the listener. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so can you can you talk about what that experience was like being a a, a child actor? Well, you know, I think. Um, I think what affected what I was doing as a kid the most was was what was going on in my house, especially with my mother, because my adopted mother was uh, uh, paranoid schizophrenic. And, and we can get to this later. It was something that she nor any of us knew about. And so I was raised in a house where um, you were the object of other people's um, issues, um, and I was looked at very much as the problem in, in the family. And I spent a large part of my life, uh, being told that I was the problem and, and, and having people trying to effectively, um, work the problem out of me, whether it be psychologically or physically. And, um, so my home life was such that I, I was this kid who hated everything. I hated myself. I hated you know, my life, I hated what I saw outside of myself. I didn't understand anything. I was constantly being punished and, and locked up. And then my mother in her state of confusion, I think became obsessed with the talents that she saw that I had. And so it was very, very important for her a to get me out of the house and B to try to make something out of my talents. So whether it be drawing, for example, um, my mom had a seat, 
uh, seatbelt and used to tie me to the to the piano bench when I wouldn't practice and I didn't like practicing. Um, in the wintertime, she would say it's very important. And mind you, we didn't know about her clinical, her mental condition, you know, and you're trying to rationalize this as like, it's the dead of winter. She bundles me up. I don't know, you know, those like marshmallow kid suits, you can't move. She would then stick a pencil in my hand and paper and force me to go sit out and draw trees. And she wanted every last detail to the point. She wanted me to really understand the difference between evergreen and deciduous trees, which was fine, but you can't draw too well in the mittens. (laughs) and marshmallow suit and so i sit out there was hating her so much and this went on with astronomy and bug collecting and acting and she made me take latin as a kid and then ballet came into the picture and acting and as soon as i started ballet as soon as i started the ballet um i was i it's like it's like I was always looking for an escape. I was always looking to get out of this house. I was looking to get out of her clutches and her insanity and my father and my brothers and all that. And I, the first day I went and went to the ballet class, um, I knew I had found a new mother in the director and I was seven years old. And I'll never forget that the, the first time I danced, it was, it was only about one thing and that was to impress this lady who I had now dubbed in my head, my new mom. Um, my mom was standing at the door. I was nauseated with her watching me. There was something about me opening up and revealing something about myself that was real and deep and vulnerable that I would never, ever allow. And in front of your mom, in fr- well, yes, in front of my mother, yes, particularly in front of my mother. So it was an interesting dichotomy trying to dance completely closed hearted but trying to impress and overachieve and overcompensate at the same time. And you were trying to hold that side of yourself from your mother seeing, but you wanted to show the rest of this to the dance teacher. Well, I think what I didn't realize, correct, I guess from an external sense, but in all actuality, I, what I was doing, there, I, there, I, I was incapable of opening my heart truly because of what I was going through as a child. Um, so while I thought I could be happy and open it with other people outside of the house, it wasn't, it wasn't possible, but yeah, so, so very quickly, my life became about, you know, getting away from this family and, um, the people who I, who would become my surrogate parents, uh, were foreigners and very strong willed. We, we call them furners. Furners? Furners. Where, from where do you call them? <laughs> Here in the Valley? I didn't know that. Uh, no, they were very wealthy. And they were the, everything the opposite of um, my mom. The problem became very quickly that there was a triangulation going on. I was very confused because now my mother became obsessed with my careers. But if I were punished, the one thing that she would take away were were my lessons, which incited such rage in these directors who then would turn... Uh, my parents, particularly my mother, into the bad guys. And I became the brunt of all this. And my mother, in her way, made me feel like these people were bad. And so I was so confused because everybody was pushing for me so much, but at the same time, knocking each other down. And I was a little kid. um, And I'll be honest, I hated performing from the first day I ever did it. Uh, I just went back to the theater because I had to meet my surrogate parents, these directors, 
at the theater where they're putting on a production. And so it was surreal. Out of all the days of the year, they're having a show that night. And I walk in after 22 years and they're, they're in the audience in dress rehearsal and everybody's on the stage. And that was the stage that I danced for the first time in my life when I was eight years old. And it, I found myself standing there spellbound, remembering how much I hated hated that very first show being in front of that audience. I couldn't stand it. I absolutely hated it. And how poignant it is that I would continue for so many decades after that, pushing and pushing and pushing myself to succeed and achieve um, and never listening. And I think that's really important. That's something I would want to convey to your listeners is, you know, the one thing I was never able to do is to listen to that very small part of me because I didn't have that very small part of me accessible. I only had rage and you know extreme emotions i had no quiet quiet quietness quietude within me um but standing there after 22 23 years actually no it'd be, be 35 years it was poignant to realize wow i didn't like to do it you never listened to that part of yourself that that had dread about it i thought you were supposed to do what you hated the most because i was so addicted and only knew the walking of the tightrope through life. And I'll say, you know, I still, I'm 42 now. I still have that. I wake up with the dread. I wake up on the tightrope between the twin towers. Well, no, bad, bad analogy. Um, but I wake up on have the Have you tight- seen that documentary, by the way, of the guy walking on the tightrope between? Philippe Petit. I, wor- oh. I used to work with him. Really? Yeah. He's fantastic. We used to do parties. No, segue. We used to do parties and he would, his whole thing of, he would set up his thing inside some inside the party venue and walk across all the tables, which is almost more death defying than seeing him do it way up high because he's like six feet over people eating their dinner. <laughs> wow. And he'd, he'd take food and wine and drink. Yeah, amazing. If you haven't seen the documentary, it's called Man on a Wire. Hmm. And right, isn't that what it's called? Uh, yeah. And it, it it's amazing it's about so much more than a guy walking on a wire between two buildings without a net it's it's this guy was born that it was like that is how i need to express myself i will stop at nothing to achieve this it's yeah it was pretty amazing but getting getting back to what you were talking about before we go any further can you um explain uh the surrogate parents were those your adoptive parents, or was it different? So I I was adopted. Um, my parents, my birth parents, gave me up when I was about one, and I lived in a boarding home until then. And I, and then I was adopted by uh, these two people, the ones who with the insanity in the household, and that's that's what I grew up with in Long Island. Yeah, and then my adopted mother killed herself when I was about twelve. Um, not knowing her condition or anything this like was that. the paranoid schizophrenic yeah both my parents were raging alcoholics um, my mother was addicted to everything under the sun in terms of pills um, my my adopted father after her death went out, got on with his life so he basically left we still had the house there but he was never there and so at 12 years old you know i was like wow we're free you know because here the insanity stopped so and he ended up getting remarried to my stepmothers, uh, which brought in a whole step family. In the meantime, I went to live with the the my directors, who uh, I would live with for about six or seven years. So I consider them my surrogate parents. I see. And then, so 
and then later on I would come come to find my birth parents, my mother and my father, a biological sister and all that. Um but it's all these folks that I hadn't seen in all these years that I just came back from seeing. Who who was there? All of them? I went I went to for I stayed with my birth father, God bless him, the most amazing person in the world. I just am so blown away how God provides. It's just amazing, incredible. I stayed with him. I went to see my stepmother my adopted father who's now in a nursing home who has uh, alzheimer's who doesn't even know what's going on the last time i saw him we could actually converse now i i look at him and he just stares at me and anyway so i saw them um you sure he's not watching jeopardy and just thinking no (laughs) no uh he may be watching jeopardy but he's not thinking okay that's the lovely the lovely thing about alzheimer's get used to me uh, by the way of bringing the the, aren't these repeat listeners the the interview to a screeching no i think they know (laughs) i think they know guys we know don't we um no and then i saw i went and saw my surrogate parents and um uh and then the step step i saw step family um I reached out to my adopted brother, my older one, and my younger one. Um, older one lived, he was the closest to my birth father. He was only 20 minutes away, and he didn't even bother returning my calls. So that was... Um, was he from the same... Was no, he a, no a, different parents. And I would say... why? How did he get to be close to your birth father if he was... Oh, uh, no, close in proximity, close oh, in geographic I got location. You. I got they you. Just, meaning to say that it would have been the easiest to see him. The I other see. people I was trekking three hours, you know, on Long Island from upstate and all this stuff. Um, Where did the worst of the abuse take place? And can you talk about that? Where in turn, like, uh, what do you mean? W- with which people and at what ages? Well... I would say I would say probably the most destructive was with my adopted parents. Um, I wouldn't say it was. Yeah, yeah, I guess because it was it was all day every day. It was my entire life. Um, you know, my my parents believed in hitting you, and so from a very very early age, really around the age of four, mm-hmm. four to five. It was just around the age of first grade. And I know because 1974, 1975 is such a poignant time for me. And I often ask myself, why am I so drawn to this? It's like, because this was the turning point. What I understand now I have to believe is that my mother's condition was changing. Her schizophrenia was now starting to take a more severe form because prior to that, you know, things were relatively okay. You know, or I was just so young, I don't remember. Um, and kids are so resilient. Yeah, but my, but my mom used to smile and she used to laugh and that like all went away, you know, and suddenly now it was a constant, um, you're being hit and uh, locked in your room. Like that was the thing, the doorknob on my door was always reversed and I was always the one getting in trouble. My brothers, no. If we got into a fight, I was the one who was blamed. Even if I knew that they were the ones who started it, she blamed me. Um, were they adopted as well? or, or were my, they... my younger brother was biological to my adopted parents, and my older brother is uh, from a... He was adopted from another family. Was there favoritism towards any sibling? Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I would suppose... I, I always felt there was. You know, I... Because I only saw me getting in trouble. 
I only saw me getting hit. And when I got hit, it was a family affair. You know, it was my brother going to get me so that my parents could hit me. It was my father running after me and dragging me back to the house so my mother and my father could hit me and sit on top of me and hit me. It was always about me getting in trouble. And I was a feisty one. They would sit on top of you and hit you? Yeah. My mom and my mom would like dig her nails into my face and, you know, she would just be laughing and I would be so seething with anger. And I just need to say this and it's, it's a rather vulnerable thing for me to say, but I think it's, it's important in that rage with my parents sitting on me and me screaming at the top of my lungs, there was nothing and nowhere I could go. And I used to become sexually aroused. I think for lack of a better place to put all of my focus because there's only so much you can hate. There's only so much you can yell and scream. And I'll tell you, you guys, this has been a very destructive side to my personality that developed. Because um, as you can imagine, if you're aroused by severe pain, you're going to make some pretty uh, challenging choices for yourself in your life. I am so glad that you said that, Peter, because I have so many listeners that fill out there's a survey called the shame and secrets survey oh, wow. and we've had thousands of people wow. take this survey That's amazing. and i can't tell you how many people hate themselves hmm. because they have they are turned on by some form of pain or degradation hmm. and many of them need it to orgasm and hmm. they feel that it makes them a bad person yeah of, absolutely. And I would say from a, you know, from my own sense, from a spiritual perspective, it's going against my spirit to do things like that. Absolutely. It's going to bring me shame. I understand this now, but you know, it, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. No, no. It's just an unhealthy way of no, dealing with an emotion. No, what's amazing. You know, Paul, for the longest time, I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with my upbringing. I really didn't. And I didn't feel like I was just trying to suppress or avoid anything i used to think we were the perfect family it was only through concerted turning my focus inwards a little bit and and acknowledging for one second that oh my god my life like i hurt so everything hurts i'm so just i don't know when it happened but there was a turning point and i think that's so crucial because um if one thing I wish for for some of your viewers is that somebody acknowledges their pain for the first time after hearing this, you know, because that's that's so important and that's the hardest thing, you know. And, and the other thing, the point that I'd like to make is when you begin to engage in addictive behaviors, most people probably start when they're adolescents, some even children. You do that to numb out so you don't feel that pain. Well, as you carry that addiction with you you don't feel that pain of all the stuff going on around you but you feel the shame of your of mm. your actions wow so you haven't investigated why you needed to numb out right and you minimize it because you're numb but sadly the only thing you're not numb to is how badly you feel about yourself right. and so by treating your addiction, you take that numbing away. You suddenly feel all your feelings, but being able to feel your feelings, you're able to fo follow that thread back to where the pain started, and then 
you can begin to understand it. And then you can begin to have compassion for yourself. And then you're not a slave to that addiction. And you can begin to protect yourself from people you need to protect yourself from. That's a, that's a point that I think is very important to, to make because so many people just think, I just have no self-control. I just have no will. I'm right. just a bad person. No, you probably started numbing because it was, and then they minimize it and you, you can't make somebody intellectually understand that. Oftentimes the only route is to just focus on the addictive behavior and pull that thread. There is so much, it is the tip of the iceberg. It's a, it's about, 1% 1% of it is about the addiction and the other 99% is about why this addiction formed. Amazing. You you tell uh, you know that's amazing. You're amazing how you're able to to put things into words. And, it's it, it it it's not through any great um yes it is. I had to live it. I had to live it. And I, and I had to make every other that's mistake. That's greatness. That's greatness. Well, I'm um, so uncomfortable right now, but I had to make every other mistake and try every other fucking house on the block until I discovered that one. So mm-hmm. that that so you began to to numb out. Um, you began to yeah. And going going back to your to your question, I would say the the early years from four until my mother died at 12 um, was the worst and intermingled and there were external situations. You know, I was molested outside of the house. You know, uh, my mom used to molest me and inappropriate touch, inappropriately touch me. My surrogate mother who now, you know, these were the directors and it was always told, no, this is how she is. You know, someone says everything from I'm going to cut your dick off if I find out that you did this or do this, that that is abusive to inappropriately touching you, um, whether it's with your clothes on or your clothes off. And I used to have all of it to full fledged, you know, being molested by someone who I loved and trusted um, implicitly. What what would um, a mother do specifically to you? sexually because this is this is you know oprah and all the other shows have covered so many parts of child abuse but the one that i feel like a light still could be a little brighter on is the mothers that sexualize or or molest and i i I Mm, want to understand more not only I understand they do it because they're sick. I want to try to understand the ways that they abuse their access to children because I think as the nurturer and having more physical contact and more access to their children's bodies, I want to begin to document the ways in which they abuse that trust because they do it to not only... Uh, boys, but also to girls. I get a lot of girls, yeah. uh, women that email me that whose mothers were way too interested in their their period, and you know, and yeah. spooned with them while you know one of them masturbated. And wow. I mean, yeah, the list wow. goes on and on. Can you talk specifically about what what 
they they did if you're if you're comfortable yeah absolutely um my my adopted mother you know i had this i never wanted to be naked around her although i was really like i was i was a total streaker as a kid you know i loved being naked it, i actually felt good about it but around her no way because there was something about her that i sensed if i had a feeling she was going to get it she was going to take it from me and so, you know, I had all these kinds of feelings. And so if I walked past her with just a, a t-shirt on, no, and we're talking, you know, four or five years old, three, four or five, um, as early as I can recall, uh, she would call me over to her and she was always checking me. She was always checking me and the other guys of, am I growing up yet? Well, I'm like four or five years old. And so she would have to pull my shirt up and look at my genitals and like make me stand in front of her. And like, she'd have to like explain to me, oh, well, let's see, are you getting bigger? And I don't think she meant like aroused bigger. I think she meant more mature. So of course that made me feel horrible. My surrogate mother, as soon as I met her, used to threaten me. Like I said, she would always threaten that she was going to cut off my genitals if I did this or if she found out I was this or if I was going here or doing this with this person that she didn't like. So it was always under the constant threat, which I never took seriously. So I thought, of course I did. What it did is it cut me off from my lower, my lower region, you know, because as long as you don't have any feeling down there, who cares if she's going to cut it off? Um, but she always used to grab me. And it would always be under the guise of like, you know, let's make a joke. And, and it used to actually make me laugh, of course, because I kind of had to. Because for me, if I didn't go along with it, where did I have to go back to? What was I going to go back to? So there was a constant grabbing at my genitals and my nipples and pulling at them. Um, you know, and what it made me do, and she would, this was a much older woman. It made me do the same to her. You know, because it's like, oh, okay, well, if we're going to do tit for tat or tit for tit, <laughs> you know, that's really bad. You better edit that. Um, you know, I'm just going to go along with it. But it made me feel awful. Um, uh, my, uh, you know, so so being naked around my mother was a mixed message because she would also bear, have me bare bottom spanking you know, spanked. And so again, my pants will be down. And I was so used to being in front of her feeling the shame about my genitals and really about me not, not wanting to grow because I was so fearful. Um, the other thing is, is that, uh, you know, I was, I was obsessed with searching through my parents belongings. I think because there was so little that they were giving out about themselves. And I was on this quest to find something about them. And, you know, my mom had all of her vibrators and her sex books and, and so I was always in her room going through her stuff. I can say I was very early on addicted to that. And the shame that that brought me, because on some level, even as a young kid, I mean, I knew there was something sexual, you know, when you see all these things that vibrate and they look like penises in, in her nightstand on her side of the bed, I knew it wasn't my father's. And then all these books about adults having sex, it was always on my mind with her. And then uh, coupled with the fact that she was always wanting to check me and inspect me. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, and, and the, even the way that she used to talk about sex and I believe in her state, she did mean well when she would try to sit and tell us or tell me about sex, because I used to ask like, where do, where do babies come from? And instead of just telling me, she would have to say, well, 
the way babies are made feels really, really good. You know, it feels really good. And she would get into the feeling almost like she was reliving it herself. And I remember even as a young kid, like that made me feel awful. And I think this is really what I'm left with in all of it. You know, there's so many things that happen to us, but in all intents and purposes, after the, you know, the way to healing for me, I think, has been to acknowledge in my recollection of things what made me feel bad. That's really all, that's really all it is. And I went through a very, very long time of, you go through the, the, the stages of, of a death. It's a death. It's a death of denial. And all the bargaining, you know, that, oh, for years I used to do that, Paul years it was like i was gonna go crazy i used to because i would it was the start of me you know coming to terms with wow there was something was not right um and years i would i would be on the bus or like outside doing something and this dialogue in my head would be like she did it but no she didn't did it make me feel this way oh see no it didn't and it was like these people i got an erection that one time well then and i'd be be at the supermarket and it would be going and going and and what i realize now is know the way to it is to go well how did it make me feel because honestly my mother could have done this and i and i say this you know in all objectivity some someone else could have gone through the same thing and it not have affected them the same way and for them it may have not been considered abusive you know for me i know what made me feel awful I know what made me feel tons of shame and tons of guilt. And going back to your point before, I think, you know, I think one of the most liberating and terrifying times in the healing process for me was, was finally starting to, to, to say, no, my, my mother did this to me or my father did this to me. Um, you know, there was so much terror around that. I never knew I even had any of that terror, but to be able to find people who I could start to just talk from that vantage point. No, I didn't do that. And then Thomas go to an extreme with it and to, and to not be judged by doing that, you know, to go to the extreme where everybody's doing everything to you, you know, but at least you're starting to, to externalize and, and realize that you you didn't grow. We don't grow up in an isolated bubble. We are affected by the people who we are raised by. We are affected by our situation. I'm glad I'm glad you made that point because there is kind of a pendulum to recovery where it's like oh, you don't think totally. anything happened and then you blame everybody, everybody and everything Absolutely. and then it kind of settles in the middle mm-hmm. and you see them as very flawed human beings and you hopefully have compassion both for, for them and yourself. And, and ultimately the place to be, I think, is to be able to have compassion for other people but not at the expense of compassion for that's, yourself. And that's why they say you can't do the healing by yourself because you have to have a healthy mirror. You have to have um, unconditional love in the present moment by someone. I, I think personally a group is always ideal, but for someone it may just be a person, a priest, a friend. I wouldn't say a child. Don't do it with your children. You know, I wouldn't advocate doing it with your spouse a family member, someone that you can trust, who you can start to talk to, who's going to mirror back to you in the present that you're okay, you know, that you're safe. I think that's so, so important. And I think what what is good about support groups too, is there's no strings attached. There's no, they don't, they don't have anything to gain um, from, from the relationship. And so when you feel like a relationship between you and I, 
you know, when I feel that love coming from from you and that compassion coming from you, um, it, I don't know, there's something really, really nice about it um, when it's a room full of people that have no reason to lie to you and they're telling you you're lovable. Why don't we, t- why don't we talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost ironic you know because yes it does feel really good doesn't it the love but at the same time when you're when you're addicted to not that to the opposite of that to isolating and doing things what do we find you know what what do we witness with people in our different groups and stuff that come in and out um you know i i i think it goes without saying it's you know when you are raised to believe that you are worth nothing when the when the voice in your head the strongest voice in your head is telling you that you are a piece of shit and that you don't matter and that you might as well be dead um all the love in the world you know the the better the feeling the worse it's going to make you feel because you know you're mirroring back to it that you're that you're not the one that should be feeling that. And it's so a you're, war. you're fighting. Yeah. You're, you're fighting energy. It's really, instead of allowing it in, you're, you're, you're at, you're trying to deflect all of these certain qualities of energy. But then, you know, the lower vibration, the, you know, the hate, shame and guilt and anger and all that, you're more than, you're more than welcoming of all that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I know for me, I think one of the biggest things, especially when I first started, um, allowing other people in to help me heal was uh, the whole, you know, the other shoes going to drop, right. you know, it's like, great. You know, you have a great night, you've connected, you know, you're in the moment, you're, you just discuss some really heavy duty stuff and you go home and you wake up the next morning and you're like, Oh my effing God, what did I do? Like, how could I have talked about that? Cause you know, you're actually, you're, you're reliving the whole thing over. It's, it's, and you've made yourself vulnerable. Exactly. Exactly. You know, they say, like, from a biological standpoint, all cells are doing, and I believe this um, from a health standpoint, because uh, physical health plays into all of this stuff, um, that all cells do, or we, we are either in a constant state of con- contraction or expansion. And, um, and so you can imagine, like, how much your cells and your body and every piece of you is in a state of contraction. Um, and I'm sure, you know, some of your listeners who are experiencing a lot of emotional pain are also, you know, uh, getting the double whammy of physical health issues. And, um, in a large way, you know, my health issues played into my urgency and my, and my willingness to surrender to healing because even, if I was in perfect physical health, if I didn't have physical problems, I could probably stand the emotional pain. I probably wouldn't look at it too much. But it was the physical that actually got me to really look. It really it got me more scared. Can you talk specifically um, about when when you found out? Yeah, um, I I had sex with a guy when I was twenty one, and I'll never forget. And I considered myself heterosexual before that. I'd always been into girls and I had girlfriends and enjoyed sex and all that stuff. But there was always another side of me. And I think this is important too because I, um, and so I had sex and I, 
And I, of course, I got drunk and I had unprotected sex. And I proceeded to get very, very sick. And the guy that I had sex with was a good 10, 12 years older than I was. And I was in the hospital. I came down with, you know, I was 21. I was in New York. Um, they said I had meningitis of the throat. They put me, I'll never forget, I had, I was in Roosevelt Hospital. My room overlooked Gracie Mansion. And I, I looked out one day and I said, wow, I'm lucky. I got the best view. And the nurse was like, yeah, actually, this is like the worst place to be. They give this to people who they know aren't going to make it. And I'll never forget that. I'm, Gracie Mansion. Gracie wow. Mansion. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, so what ended up happening is those were back in the days. I mean, we're talking like 1992, something like that. Back in the days of like anonymous testing labs, which is what I made sure I went to to get my test results. I knew I had HIV. I knew it right then. I I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to admit it. And then tests came back negative. I'll never forget. I thought, you know what? No, there's no way. Fast forward, fast forward. um, Unprotected sex, addicted to unprotected sex, never used a condom in my life. Um, uh, Addicted to having sex with people I didn't want to have sex with. Um, The darkness and, uh, you know, being estranged from my family. I, I, I transmuted all that energy into having unprotected sex because I really just wanted to go back with them. And you know, it was, it was this whole big convoluted mess. Um, but I absolutely ruined my health, ruined my health. Um, I ended up getting, and this is really important because I think HIV, everybody knows, or a lot of people know that HIV caught early is completely treatable and completely painless. And you will not have never, you'll never have any side effects with the refinements and medications, but there are always more complicated illnesses that come in. And one of them is HPV that both men and women get. And they end up having that. Um, and because of my compromised immune system, it ended up converting to precancerous into rectal cancer. And so for the last two and a half, three years, I've been going through all the treatments necessary. Thankfully, thanks be to God, I'm, it's apparently, allegedly gone. It's out of my system. But needless to say, what happened early on in youth um, had me wrecking myself physically, using myself as like a human receptacle. And um, that's really sad. You know, that's really sad to me that if I had been able to do the work, I wouldn't have had to go through that. You know, I believe... I believe everything is as it's supposed to be, but honestly, the the amount of physical that's I'll, a that's a hard one to put on that side of the ledger. I'll give you I'll give you a laundry list of the illnesses. So maybe you know if some of your listeners are going through some serious medical things, they'll know that like they don't have to be alone with it. And um, so when I when my T cells dropped, I think I got HIV in nineteen ninety three. In 1998 into 99 is when I started to um, see the effects of low to no T cells. I was getting my blood counts. Um, uh, I was going to doctors every three months, every three months. And they were all saying, you know, yeah, you know, they went, they started from. I, I have a question. Yeah. Going back to when you were in the Gracie, uh, looking over Gracie yeah. Mansion. They did an HIV test and it came Correct. back negative. Correct. It, what? So obviously some type of mistake was made. I I believe. When did you finally get a test that showed? Ninety eight. Cho- okay, so that's when you knew you yeah. were HIV positive. Yes. But you even kind of felt 
Oh, I knew. I was. I knew before that. Okay. And and ironically, years later, I had fallen out of touch with this guy, and I was I was I was somewhere, and as God works, these people get this. These people were sitting in the waiting room of a doctor in New York City, and someone said the name of this guy. He had a unique name, and I I knew. I turned around. And I said, "Do you mean so and so?" And they said, "Well, yeah." And I said, "What about him?" I said, "Oh, did you hear?" And I just had that sinking feeling. This was the guy that I had se- unprotected sex with that first time. They said, oh, yeah, he's about to die. He has AIDS. And I was like, what? I was sitting in the, the doctor, some random doctor. Mm. And these people were sitting. And it, they gave me his phone number. And I was able to actually speak to him right before he passed away. And, of course, my thing was, you know, well, because he knew. That's my point. He knew when we were together that he had full-blown AIDS. And so, of course, you know, he had dementia the whole nine yards. He didn't even know what was going on. But I was like, okay, if you knew, why didn't you say something? You know, did you then ever have unprotected sex after getting the positive tests? Okay. So you did the exact same thing you you were pissed at him for. Exactly. 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 Yes. I even gave someone HIV who who found out that he was HIV positive. I can't prove for sure because he was sleeping with a lot of other people. I want to just say that I did. I will just, I will take the blame for that. I need to, you know, can I, can I say one way or the other for sure? No, but yeah, no, that is, that's one of the hardest things. And, you know, there's certain things in life that should give you shame. And that's one of them. You know, I, I, I need to feel that I would. So at this point I would rather have no sex than, you know, potentially put anybody else at risk. Um, But yeah, so in 98, the doctors were telling me, you, you should probably go on medicine. Yeah, yeah, your T-cells aren't too good. Yeah, whatever. I'm not going. I knew I wasn't going on those medicines. The insanity in my head said, those medicines will take away your personality. I had no personality. They said, you know, the voice in my head said, those medicines are bad for you. They're <laughs> evil. The side effects are terrible. You know? And so what happened was, is my T-cells dropped from just under 200, and they're like, well, you have AIDS, to 100, to 50, to 20, to 5. And for about a year and a half, I went around with less than 20 T-cells. Now, here's the deal. I would, because I was so determined to find another way. What's a healthy number for T-cells? In a normal individual, uh, some people just range on the low end. It could be 400 to 1600 normal is about six to 1200 around there okay yeah so i had less than 20 i would pass out on the street i had pneumonia four times the first time i was uh, in the hospital in icu i was on a ventilator and that was the first time i had my outer body experience because i woke up in icu i passed out on the street someone had taken me to the emergency room i woke up in icu all these machines were going, and that was the first time that it hit me that like, wow, something's probably wrong. But I had no fear, and I didn't feel any pain, and I didn't feel bad about anything, and actually felt good that I was being taken care of. That was a very important point of my medical past, which is the only place I ever felt safe um, is in the hospital. Because there was no one to take care of me. There was no one looking after me. There was no one saying, no, we want you to stay. We're going to be you know, good to you. It's okay. You can stay no matter what you've done or what's going on. 
So the hospital was the only safe place. And I, I recognized that that first time I just happened to be on a ventilator and I, I wasn't able to breathe is my point. And, um, I, I, I'll never forget. I had this, I had this outer body experience there in the hospital, which, which the sense was that, oh, okay, I'm going to get out of here. This is like retarded. Like this is, who cares? This is no big deal. And I did. And then I ended up back in ICU three more times with the pneumonia. The thing was, is when you can't breathe, it's very hard. And what I didn't bank, what I didn't figure is not the time when I was in the hospital, but what I was going to be able to do or not do when I was out of the hospital. Because for those of you that have been in intensive hospital care, you get out and you're so weak. You could feel strong in the hospital, but as soon as you leave, you have no legs. You have no energy. You can't do anything. Like, it's weird. It just takes all the energy out of you. I went back. I had a heart attack. I had open heart surgery. I had cryptococcal meningitis, which is meningitis of the brain. I had lesions on the brain. I had another form of meningitis. I had MAC, which is a form of TB. And for four and a half months, I had 104 fever. And they tested me everything under the sun. You can't even imagine. They didn't know what was going on. They're like, oh, you have cancer. And this was before I was diagnosed with the rectal cancer. Um, but they knew you had HIV. Correct. Right. Well, at that point, I had AIDS. Um, now, mind you, I had no family. Um, people were contacted because someone took, thankfully, while I was out and unconscious, took my phone, called everybody on the list. My family knew. Not one of them ever called. Not one of them ever came to see me. Uh, my birth father did. And that's another story. When I was 27, I met my birth parents. But people that I'd known up until then, no one came. That was very poignant. And I'll bring it into the present moment because going to visit my adopted father who's now in a nursing home with alzheimer's and my stepmother uh who by the way the day my stepmother came to live with us i felt so guilty and so paranoid that she would know what went on because she lived in the same house that all this went down as a child um i i had her become my godmother i'm technically baptized catholic she's old world italian catholic i thought my god i feel so bad for this woman she's coming into this insanity both my brothers are drunks i'm a raging drug addict my father's a raging alcoholic and she's gonna come live with us um but you know she was very sickly when she when she moved in and i was the one to take care of her well it's interesting because and this is important to say you know at my sickest the doctor sent me home and they said you need to go be around people who know you not people who love you but people who know you the only people I could think of were them. I contacted them in New York. I was living in uh, Los Angeles. I contacted them. They said, oh, okay, yeah. A couple weeks before I was, uh, so in the meantime, I got rid of my apartment. I sold my car. I started packing up all my stuff. Now I was in and out of intensive care trying to do this by myself. About a week or so before my trip, I got this feeling that I should probably call my adopted father. And I called him. And I was like, yeah. And so I was saying, so, you know, I'm going to have my stuff shipped in like a couple of days. And he's like, what stuff? And uh, I said, well, my stuff. He's like, well, you're only going to be staying like a week or something, right? And I'm like, okay, you don't get it. And I just got this horrible feeling. And I said, you know what? I got to go. And I made a pact to myself that I would never talk to him again. Right then and there, I was done. I was done. I had to put on a suit. I had to go find myself a new apartment. Now, I had like 104 feet. I was so sick. I was And he knew, he knew how sick you were? Of course he did. He said, well, that's fine. You can come for like a week, but you can't tell anyone of your condition because the grandkids won't be allowed to come here. Now, these are kids that I helped raise. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That's not going to work. 
come full circle. When I was there this week, this past week, my whole goal was to be of service, was to go. I knew that my adoptive father was in a nursing home. I figured my stepmother was going to need help. I, I, I'm purpose. And this is the first time I'm seeing them since that time. When I, you know, I didn't see them, but I talked to them over the phone. That was the last contact I had with them 14 years ago. Um, I on purpose said to my stepmother, well, I'm sure you're going to need help. You're alone. She's like, yeah, well, I'll probably have to take a taxi. I said, here, I'll, I'll come and pick you up at the house and we'll go to the nursing home together. Is there anything else? Do you need to go to a store? Blah, 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 blah. We were talking and when we were taking my father to the cardiologist, we were sitting in the cardiologist's office and my stepmother, we were talking about illnesses and my father, my father's issues, he has, he has aneurysms with, and an aneurysm in the brain, which triggered the Alzheimer's and all this stuff. My stepmother turned to me and said, did you ever have health issues? Wow. And I'll tell you, Paul, it was so important. That was the, that was one of the moments I wanted to touch with her and them that if I tried to manipulate it to get it, it wouldn't have been what it was supposed to be. It came organically. All I was trying to do was be of service with them. If I was going to look for the dirt, I wouldn't and shouldn't have gone at all, but I was there to be of service the dirt came out and I needed to touch that place because in that moment that she said that I looked at her, I looked at my father and I realized, you know, as far as these people go, I am, I am alone. I am not a part of this. They have, they're not a part of my life. They never have been. And no wonder I was so self-destructive because not only did she know, she said she was the one that initiated the whole thing about me not being able to go home. And so I needed to be there. Why would she have said that to you then? What? Have you ever had health issues? Because that's, that's how she rolls. That's her way of, of doing things. She hears what she wants to hear. So she, she was trying to pretend that she didn't know that you were I truly sick. believe in that moment. Um, to, I, I want to be careful not to assume too much, but um, from what I know of her, I think she truly just didn't even, it didn't even, it, it didn't mean anything to her. And that's the point that, you know, certain things in life um, need to mean things to us, you know, and for her, me being that sick didn't even go that deep to the point where she wouldn't remember, because if it were important to her, she, she would remember it. I truly believe she doesn't even remember because it just didn't even matter. She's so consumed with her own stuff. But what a great thing after all this to be able to come full circle and, and to be, to be okay. It hurts. Don't get me wrong. It hurts a lot. It shows me how autonomous I've had to be, you know, with them. Was the reason that you went back to, what was the reason you went back to see these people? I, to put closure to a lot of fantasy. Um, I've worked through a lot of stuff, but what I hadn't done is been able to actually have the conversation with them to know, to know, what it was to stand in front of them and not feel like a piece of shit. I've never known what it is to not feel like shit around them, any of them, you know? And so, you know, for me, it was, I, I, I prayed a lot about it before I went. And I, 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 I said to the Holy spirit, I was like, you know what? Glorify yourself through me on this trip. If it's not meant to be, then you show me, you give me a sign you give me a sign. And the next day in the mail, <laughs> I thought it was a joke, was a plane ticket, a free plane ticket to anywhere in the United States. Really? 
a free plane ticket. And I called up Southwest Airlines and I said, I have this thing. They're like, yeah, sir. It's, I'm like, I, cause I said, I said to the Holy Spirit, I said, you give me a tangible sign. Cause I can't keep going back and forth. If this is the right thing, if it's not the right thing, the next day in the mail, I got the thing that looked like junk mail. And I, I never look at junk mail. I actually called them because I was thinking, all right, well, if this is free, then, and it was. Wow. Yeah. But, the, but so the reason was, is that I felt I was being guided to go back there. That was the main reason. And because you I weren't felt, going there out of guilt. No, I felt like because I was being guided to go there, then I had to show up and be of service to honor the guidance that I felt like I was getting you know, or being given. And so what that meant that everything kind of then rolled and fit into place. Well, if I'm being guided to go there, that means that there's a purpose, which means I have to be of service. And so what does that mean? I had to break it down with each person. What is it going to mean to be of service with this person in this situation? I really, I had to be very, very um, organized about it because otherwise I would have been a complete wreck. So for each person I had a very like goal oriented thing. Okay. This is what I'm going to be like with this person. I had to be at the same time. I had to just go with no expectations, but I just, I had to be clear, you, you know, know, I'm struck as you, as you talk about your relationship with your, your God and your Christianity. I love I'm, it. I'm just struck by the feeling that I wish more Christians took their belief as a form of personal responsibility and less as a sword they wield to feel morally superior over other people. I know. Well, the number one thing that, you know, Jesus said was don't judge. The only one you're allowed to judge is yourself. It's, it's very easy to get on a high horse because I was thinking about this the other day, you know, I have a very strong sense of something greater than myself. And because that sense kind of allows me to feel the sense of empowerment, it makes me feel entitled to talk about that empowerment. And because so many of the other people who are religious talk in the we or the you, I mean, I know every time I hear you, I justifiably am allowed to detach from what that person is about to discuss because that you is not about me, that you is about them. The hardest thing about you know, this, this, this source of like greater than myself is, is to own it and to talk from the eye and to talk from the experience. I think that's one thing that like religion in general lacks so much of when you hear people talking about religion or people preaching preachers is that, is that they they don't talk from their experience, you know, own it, own your experience. And therein lies, I think, the issue with a lot of religious folks is that they're not really feeling it. They don't have the experience. There is no experience. And so if it's one goal that I really want to you know, achieve in my life is, is sharing my experience of what it is to be um, a religious person, you know, mm-hmm. and hopefully maybe I can impart some of that experience, like the, but it, have it be experiential for me and the other person that I'm talking to, not just talking about my experience, but have us come together and experience it together. Maybe, you know, that would be a really good thing for me. I, I almost, almost wish sometimes that the people who are quote unquote, really religious, um, 
but their actions don't seem to be very spiritual. I almost wish that they would go through a period of not believing at all so that they could come back to it from a place where they where it's integrated into their life and it's not this separate thing that's about dressing up and going someplace on Sunday and fitting in with everybody. You know, uh, we look at through the ages, what do we respond to in people? We, we respond to their strength, but we respond to their strength through the difficulties that they go through. You know, there, there's some stuff going on in the news right now. And thankfully I see the media trying a little bit to focus on the heroes and the strength I wish we could do that more in people. I think we're obsessed with the negative. And I don't and I don't think that's the point. You know, my question always is, you know, where is God in this situation? And it it used to be where were you God in this situation? Now it's no, my focus needs to be set on finding God in every situation. And there's a difference, yeah. you know. It was revelatory for me to realize one day and it happened just like that. It was one day that I heard something at a meeting and I realized that I didn't have to try to figure out anything out anymore. I could just stop. And what happened? All of these emotions started to come out because, and I don't know who I was surrendering to or what, but the fact that I didn't have to try to figure anything out was huge. It was such a weight off my shoulders. I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I say so many times, the spiritual plane cannot be accessed through the intellectual plane. There is no door. Mm. There is no door there. And that's why oftentimes so many of us have to try every other solution in our lives for either our addiction, our sadness, or what, what, something we're struggling with. And we have to give up trying to figure it out. And in that giving up, something happens in our chemistry that I, I believe that our vibration changes and we interact with the world in a, in a different way chemically. And that makes perfect, perfect sense to me. I, I would venture to guess that 90% of society's ills can be traced to the fact that people are ignoring their spirit. We need to be teaching children about the power of surrender. You know, when was the last time who taught me that like, the way to true happiness is by acknowledging that I'm completely powerless over my life. <laughs> like that goes, that is completely ass backwards. Everything we're taught. Our society tells us just the opposite, that if you try really hard, you can do anything. Correct. No, you can't. There's a gazillion things no, you that are can. out of your control. You can, you can. And that's the point. No, you can. And I'm so glad you said that you can. And people will. You know, forever, ad infinitum, they're going to keep on trying, but you won't be all that happy. And what are we seeking here on you this planet? You think that people planet? can achieve anything if they, if they try? Well, yeah, they do all the time, but how happy are they? How acknowledging of their, would, of, their, of their soul and their feelings and all that stuff? No, not at all. I'm not, I, and I'm not saying that it's not okay to dream and it's not uh, okay to... Uh, try very hard to achieve, especially if there's inspiration inside you. I think that is the, one of the greatest things ever. But there's this belief, I think, in our society that every you can control anything. 
because I think that's the inherent message in that you can achieve anything. I think implicit in that is you can control anything. And as you and I have talked for this last hour, a lot of times it's the surrendering of the things we don't have control over that is the door to happiness. It's, it's, it's the only way. Would you clarify that? Could I clarify that by saying in the long run, we don't really have any control? Because I have control over whether I can walk over right now and turn the light switch on. So I have control over that. I have control right. over what time I'm going to get up or whatever. But in the long run, in the in the long view of our lives, we really don't have control. Yeah. Over. Thank Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Good stuff. Do you want to do a uh, read some of our our loves? Yeah. This is from uh, a woman who calls herself uh, Murphy. Uh, Hi, Murphy. I'm going to start with hers. I love a nice hot shower after working out. I love feng shui. I love finding a book that I can't put down. I love eating healthy. I love driving early in the morning when it's pitch black and there's no one on the road. <gasps> oh my God, I love That's that. That's a good one. I, yeah, I go to the gym at 2 a.m. for that reason. I love old homes and old places. I love the collective sense of belonging that comes with conventions. I love opera, Broadway, live theater. Um, it's hard to see it at the time, but I have to admit that I love change. That's a good one. Wow. Oh, that's it. That's it for her love list. Yeah. What's your, what's your last one? The Bible and Bible study. And I love kids. And I love that that makes me uncomfortable and that I'm going to leave that in there because I love you. I get uncomfortable talking about the Bible. Um, and I love that I can say that. To you, and you know that I'm I'm not attacking you personally. I didn't write it. <laughs> I just remember. I like to think that you know the Bible is divinely inspired. My interpretation of it is not, and it never will be. So, um, I want to thank you for being my friend. I want to thank you for being there when I needed you, and continuing to be there when I when I need you. Um, thank you for being so honest and I know a lot of what you said will move a lot of people some of it will piss some people off some of it will confuse other people um, but I I love your truth I thank love your you. truth and I love you and I love yours and I my wish for your listeners is just to know that you know we have to be having a dialogue about all this stuff yeah you know Every civil, a civil dialogue. Yeah, everything, everything you feel about everything is is important. You know, it's just about being able to talk about it. You know, and that's what I hope this is all about. So, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Paul. And it's a shame we couldn't get Mary. There was no way I wasn't going to not add that. I don't. There might have been too many double negatives in there. Many, many thanks to Peter Morrison. There is nothing like having a friend that you can really be yourself in front of. It is so. Um, I don't know what the word is for it, but uh, before I take it out with uh, a bunch of surveys, and you know what, I want to ask you guys a question. I kind of usually split up the surveys about half before the interview and about half after the interview. I wonder, would you rather if I had more of them after the interview so those of you that don't like the surveys could just get right to the interview? Um, 
just putting that out there. You can email me at uh, mentalpod at gmail.com. You can also email me at that uh, about about anything. And um, I usually try to try to respond. I'm not able sometimes to always get uh, to every email, but I make a pretty uh, concerted effort. Um, and I got to tell you, when I'm down in the in the dumps, it um, it feels really good, uh, especially like if somebody will listen to, uh, for instance, the the Doctor Zucker episode, the first Doctor Zucker episode, where I just kind of spilled the all of my pain out there um, and confusion. And I still get emails from people that will hear that episode, you know, for the first time a year later. And it's so comforting to have people reaching out, even even complete strangers. Not only does it remind me that I'm not alone, it there's a, there's a void that's been created where where my mom used to be. And I feel that emptiness, and I've been feeling it for the last year. And some days it's okay; others, other days it's it's not. And um, so, thank you for helping me. Um, before I, I, I go to these surveys, I wanted to uh, remind you that there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support it financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com, and making either a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation. Uh, for as little as five bucks a month, you only have to set it up once, and then it just, uh, uh, PayPal takes it out every every month. And um, that gets me a little closer to my dream of being able to support myself doing uh, doing this show. You can also, uh, if you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through the search portal on our homepage, and Amazon will give us a couple of nickels when you buy something, and it doesn't cost you anything. That portal is um, it's a little search box on the right-hand side of the homepage about halfway down. Um, you can also support the show by uh, non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating, writing something nice about the show if that feels truthful to you, and uh, by spreading the word on social media. That would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, all right, I think that's it as far as uh, that. So let's just go into these uh, these last surveys. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this was filled out by um, a guy who calls himself Claudius. He's straight in his 30s, was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic. Um, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? He writes, he never wanted a funeral. What the fuck are we doing here? How does writing that make you feel? It makes me smile because I know it'll happen. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I wouldn't know what to do with it. There isn't a single thing I've experienced that I would want to see in a different light since they have made me who I am today. And I wouldn't want to visit the future because seeing what I might become could change how I act now. I guess I would put it in the next, I guess I would put it next to the elliptical I never use. Fucked up, huh? Um, I shouldn't feel this way, blank. Uh, he writes, I'm supposed to feel pride that I quit drinking, but I don't. I feel empty and alone. How does that writing that make you feel? He writes, pathetic. You think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? He writes, not since I've been listening to the podcast. I hear that others are getting through it all, and I know I can do it too. That makes me feel so good to read that 
Um, would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? He writes, not better, but it makes me more confident that I can overcome it. Thank you for that, Claudius. Um, this is this is from a, a relatively new survey that's um, my friend, she's a studying to be a therapist, and it's about people's experiences in therapy, both as um, therapists and as clients. And this one was filled out by a client, um, a woman who is uh, in her uh, between 26 and 35 years old. What brought you into therapy? She writes, I had been in an emotionally and verbally abusive marriage, and after the divorce, I had extreme anxiety and depression. Describe any fears you had associated with starting therapy. I was afraid my therapist would find out that my anxiety and depression was not necessarily a byproduct of my failed marriage, rather from an accumulation of childhood neglect and being a child of parents who are alcoholics and drug abusers. Of the fears you described, did any of them come true? My therapist is very good at what she does. She was able to get to the core of my problems, and I feel she and I are able to work together to work through them. As a client, describe what worked best for you in therapy. She writes, my therapist has used a combination of esteem-building techniques, imagery, and EMDR, uh, the issues at hand. Um, EMDR st- stands for uh, eye movement desensitization desensitization and reprogramming. Um, as a client, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? Um, at first, I thought she was a flake. Everything she did seemed very cliche at first. I was very reluctant to respond to her treatment suggestions. I was almost to the point after the second or third session to seek another therapist. I decided to give it one more try, and it was then that we had a breakthrough. Something hit me during a session of EMDR, and when I told her, she said she already knew and was just waiting for me to work through it in my time. She has had my trust ever since. Oh, that's so beautiful. Um... Do you feel that you can be completely honest with your therapist? She writes, at first I withheld a lot of information from my therapist. I only wanted to deal with the issues that stemmed from my dysfunctional marriage. Once she got me to open up about my family, childhood, etc., I realized it too was necessary to work through. Um, Is there anything that you'd like to share with a group of new therapists? She writes, it was the patience and persistence of my therapist that was able to break down the brick wall that kept me from opening up to other people and being able to trust anyone. I totally get that. And I think that goes back to that thing that I look for in a therapist, which is that feeling that that you are being emotionally felt, that they are that they are taking it in and emp- actively empathizing. And it can just be for me, it can just be a look on their face, you know? I can see a look on a therapist's face and know whether or not I'll be able to cry in front of that person. Um this is from the Shame and Secret survey, and um, this was filled out by a woman named Shanti. She's straight. She's in her 30s, was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic, um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. She writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. Around the age of four or five, my dad used to walk around naked, show me barely legal magazines, let me touch his penis. He would squeeze my butt, but I cannot remember any actual sexual touching. Shanti, I, I know I am not alone in saying 
that was sexual touching, what your father did. What he did was sexual abuse. And I feel safe in qualifying it as that, even though I'm not a mental health professional. Um, that is some fucked up shit. And I don't know any other way to put it. Uh, she writes, he is now in prison for possession of child pornography, and I wonder if anything ever happened to me before I have memories of it. Well, I think the stuff that you have memories of is enough on its own. Um, I hope you're getting help. Uh, Deepest, darkest thoughts. She writes, the only way I've ever been able to orgasm is to imagine myself as a child and my father sneaking into my room to have sex with me. Uh, Deepest, darkest secrets. From age 19 to 23, I would only have sex with guys for money. I was not a streetwalker or anything, but if a guy was interested in me, I told him that he had to give me $100. It usually always worked, and I made thousands of dollars. Two years ago, I was drunk at a bar, and a guy was interested in me. I told him I would fuck him for $200. We went in an alleyway, and he gave me the money. He couldn't get it up, so I ran away with his money. Um, are you gay, straight, bisexual? Uh, she writes, straight. I used to identify as bisexual, but after too much drama with females, I consider myself to be straight. Um, what sexual fantasies are most powerful to you? Imagining uh, that my father is sneaking into my room at night to have sex with me. Sometimes telling myself to be quiet because my mother is in the next room and might hear us. If having sex during the day, uh, I imagine that I stayed home from school that day to have sex with my father and the police are coming soon. The thought that someone could catch us is crazily arousing to me. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, uh, I could not tell a partner because I don't want him to feel weird about having sex with me. I've told my best friend just recently after being friends for over 15 years and because he told me a deep, dark secret too. These secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself. She writes, in the moment of it, I am so turned on, but afterwards I feel shameful and guilty. Why would I think these things? What happened to me when I was a child to make me think these things? I have tried stopping these thoughts, but it makes sex so boring to me. Shanti, I I really relate, though the circumstances of our stuff that happened to us as kids are, are different. Um, I struggle, you know, when, when some of these memories came back to me last year, one of the things that also came back is a fantasy of wanting to go back and relive that, not with my mom, but with somebody else, you know, an older girl in the neighborhood or a different mom or some type of comforting female. And it's probably the most powerful fantasy that, that I've been having in the, in the last year. And I'm not beating myself up about it. You know, one of my friends in the support group, I shared it with them and they said, you didn't put that fantasy there. That was put there. And I know that that's the truth. And if I keep it, and I'm not saying you should go around and telling everybody everything, but holding on to it as a source of shame and personal weakness or failure is, um, that's just, you're, you're unnecessarily hurting, hurting yourself. Um, so I, you know, I, I think a therapist will help you 
work work through what to do that. But I, I guess I wanted to share that stuff that I have because I didn't have that fantasy until that kind of buried memory resurfaced and I was able to process it. And it was really fucking painful processing that. And I think by us sexualizing it, we take the sting out of it and we give ourselves a sense of control in it because if we can become physically aroused by it, then we we substitute physical arousal for that fucking deep, deep, painful wound that we were used by somebody that was supposed to protect us. So that's my two cents. And we're going to wrap it up with this last one. This is from the uh, Happy Moment Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself NWB. She's in her 20s, and she writes, A happy moment that I remember vividly happened when I was in my early teens. I was fishing with my family, but I was in my own little world. I had my headphones on and was listening to music. Out of nowhere, I felt a drop of rain and then another, and as it began to rain, the opening melody of Bittersweet Symphony began to play in my ears, and it felt perfect that it would rain just as this beautiful, sad song was playing. And I was so happy. Thank you for that, NWB. And thank you guys for for being there for me and supporting the show and helping me create this, this really cool community that um, it feeds me. It feeds me. And um, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, There is hope. There is hope. Don't give up. Sometimes it just means reaching out for help and trying a new way of living. But just just know that you are not alone. You are most definitely not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.